millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi there, and welcome to the Explaining History podcast. And this morning, I'm going to try to talk a little bit about France's empire uh, between the two world wars. And the reason why I want to talk about this today is that um, most of the focus, particularly in the Anglophone world, apologies if you're listening to this for, from France, as I know at least one of my listeners um, is, most of the focus in the, the Anglophone world um, in terms of uh, imperial history... <coughs> is on the British Empire. Obviously, the British Empire in the 20th century became, um, the, by after 1919, the um, largest uh, empire in world history, the largest kind of connected world system. It um, um, its decline um, is a constant source of discussion and debate. And as you'll know, if you listen to the last few podcasts, I've talked a lot about India, um, as really the kind of the the most prized aspect of, of that empire, uh, but then you have you know the four um, white dominions. I say white using the term of the time, but sort of uh, white colonial dominated dominions of Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa. Um, again, a kind of a tier of the the British Empire, uh, which become essentially autonomous states in their own right in the the mid nineteenth through to the 20th centuries. So there's, there's an awful lot to say about that. But France's empire gets really quite ignored. And it's a very different creature. Um, the French colonial empire runs on completely uh, different ideas, um, which are rooted far deep into France's 19th and even 18th century past. These are revolutions essentially, uh, ideas essentially, that emanate from, from the French Revolution. So it really is worth um, delving into uh, a little bit. And the uh, the problems that the French Empire faces are similar to those faced by the British Empire in the interwar years. Uh, but there are markedly different responses. The wars of the 18th century and the Napoleonic Wars lasting up to 1815 that were conclusively won by uh, a coalition of states um, featuring Britain um, left Britain as the supreme uh, overseas colonial power for the rest of the 19th century. France's defeat in 1815 
meant that the British Empire building project could uh, continue for at least the next three or four decades without any rivalry. In the um, 18, from the 1830s, France does begin to rebuild her colonial position in Africa in 1831 with the uh, annexation of Algeria, the, the conquest of, of Algeria. Um, and the, by the end of the 19th century, her empire is concentrated in North Africa, with Algeria, and interventions in Morocco, um, along with Spain. In Central um, Africa, by the um, late 19th century, the uh, flashpoint for imperial tensions between Britain and France is Sudan um, at, at Fashoda. And also in Indochina, um, in um, what becomes Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia. So that, those are the kind of the poles of the French Empire. The, it hadn't really evolved in quite the same way as the, the British Empire. And certainly it wasn't capable of generating the wealth that the British Empire was capable of, of generating. The uh, involvement of the French Empire in the 18th century and the start of the 19th century in slavery had given them um, outposts in uh, the Caribbean, places such as Haiti, um, and there was a Francophile um, uh, West African coast where uh, French slave traders uh, took slaves for the Atlantic crossing. It really is overlooked sometimes, the, the role of France in the slave trade. Britain is obviously the chief villain in all of this, but it's not to say that France, the Netherlands, um, and the Iberian Peninsula, Portugal uh, particularly, weren't, didn't have a, a key role to play, because they certainly did. Perhaps it may be, uh, it's better to talk about there being a European slave trade uh, in the 18th century. Anyway, by, the, uh, by 1919, at the end of the First World War, um, the uh, establishment of mandates over former German territories in Africa and Ottoman territories in the Middle East was a, um, a project carried out by both France and Great Britain, much to the uh, dismay and um, annoyance of Woodrow Wilson. Though, in fairness, Wilson wasn't, wasn't quite the liberal figure he's painted as being. He was less concerned with the rights of emergent peoples in, as he saw it in the Middle East and Africa as he was with self-determination in, in Europe. And his, his views on um, ethnic minorities within America, for example, are quite instructive on this subject. You know, he's quite the Southern Democrat and um, a, a, a racist uh, as regards black Americans in his own right. So let's not go painting the man up to be something he's not. The um, deals made between uh, um, Lloyd George and Clemenceau, particularly over Syria, what is now Iraq, Mesopotamia at the time, and the, the northern portion of um, Mesopotamia, where Mosul um, now uh, was situated, were based around Lloyd George's expectation that oil would be found in that region. 
he demanded to be given Mosul and horse traded influence in Syria in return. And then this is a really interesting part of the story. Clemenceau said, you want Mosul? You shall have it um, at the Paris Peace Conference. Um, in return, obviously, for uh, majority French influence in Syria. The influence that the reason why France wanted influence in Syria was interestingly historical. France um, had a long medieval crusader past in Syria, the crusader castles that you can find there, the Caractus Chevalier, um, assuming that's still in one piece, I suspect not, tragically. Um, were uh, part of, were built by the Knights Hospitalier, um, French Crusader Crusader Knights. So there was a, 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 a deep Francophile past, colonial, medieval colonial past, within Syria. Also, um, French public, um, uh, French, uh, French national pride, you know, France being mauled so badly in the First World War, demanded some kind of major... Um, gift really at the end of, of the war and uh, possession of Syria a, um, a, a territory that is um, enormously to think of it as a Muslim country is, is probably quite inaccurate it is a kind of an enormously religiously diverse country with you know Christians and uh, Druze and Maronites and Alawites and uh, Shia and Sunnis, and you know a whole whole different mix. There there were there was enormous amount of um, of early Christian um, sites within within Syria. So within the the kind of the Catholic Christian um, population of France, this was quite quite popular and attractive. Bear in mind, France in nineteen nineteen is far more. Uh, religiously switched on than Britain is. And Britain wants Ed Mosul for the oil, as as discussed. So there, uh, once Clemenceau finds out he's been done, he was distinctly unhappy on, on this score. Um, so there were... Uh, the, the development of the French Empire... Not to suggest that the development of the French Empire didn't have any commercial imperatives at all, because it certainly did, and I'll come to that in a moment... But there was there were other prevailing imperatives within um, you know French imperialism. Uh, just as when you look at Britain and India uh, in the second half of the nineteenth century, um, commercial um, commercial considerations do start to lose out to um, colonial nation building, um, British Christian religious missionary um, activity. And the idea that there was some that the British Empire, instead of being a large trading network, now had some kind of crusading zeal from the centre. That that some sort of colonial improvement of the the savage races needed to to be carried out, with um, predictably limited and occasionally disastrous consequences. By 1918, Britain had a clearly definable world system um, in place in, in her empire, as I said previously, with uh, British dominions having a very uh, significant role um, during the war, um, 
and at the Paris Peace Conference, Australian, Canadian, New Zealand and South African statesmen and generals have really quite significant decision-making power and politicians like Lloyd George and Churchill deferred to uh, men like sort of uh, Jan Smuts, for example, for uh, advice uh, and, and guidance. Um, and so um, there, it was almost as if you have... Um, a, a, a colonial, uh, a, you know, a, a white colonial coalition. Obviously, um, the places such as uh, India or Malaya are not treated with this degree of um, of courtesy and consideration at all. And the um, Edwardian statesmen um, of Great Britain were um, quite overt in their um, racial distinctions. France hasn't got that same kind of um, imperial system at all. Instead of um, having this this network based initially uh, around trade and then loosely around this notion of of building civilization, France was looking to um, export um, what it viewed as its own civic values of citizenship, of um, being, of essentially the things that make one French, the values of the French Revolution, the Third Republic. And they looked upon colonial subjects who became well-educated um, in places like Algeria or Indochina as what they called evolu, those who are essentially evolving. Again, it's inherently kind of... Um, patronising and paternalist and ultimately quite a racist notion um, that you could evolve from um, uh, being Indo-Chinese into being a, a citizen of, of France. But it was uh, attempting to, the, the, the notion of a French imperium in the 19th and 20th centuries was uh, about trying to convey citizenship on, of a greater France on to colonial subjects in millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy, that's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Much the way that, that Rome did. However, you get um, Indo-Chinese and Algerian and Senegalese and uh, other um, uh, indigenous peoples buying in to some extent to this proposition making their way up the ladder of education, career and colonial service, only to realise that there is a, an unspoken barrier based around race and ethnicity, that if you are not a white French European, um, there's only so far you can climb. And this actually causes all sorts of instability within the French Empire. Um, it means that there is a well-educated, organised and... Uh, professional core of very disenchanted, uh, disenfranchised uh, people who are more receptive to revolutionary ideas, be they kind of Marxism or Marcus Garvey's brand of black nationalism um, at the end of the First World War 
than they are to uh, notions of liberty, equality and fraternity that are espoused by France because they know these things are not true. They are hypocrisies and lies. Um, interestingly, in, it is in um, you know, Ho Chi Minh, for example, in France, in 1920, uh, becomes part of the emergent French Communist Party. But he realises in 1920, uh, in the early 1920s anyway, whilst in France, that even the Communist Party in France will still prioritise the concerns of um, white European party members in uh, trade union disputes over those of um, uh, Asian or uh, African um, party members or, or French citizens. So even there, he, he, know, he sees that the French labour movement is still um, tainted by this racism. Um, and this is one of the factors that, for Ho Chi Minh and a generation of people like him, galvanise them to um, become part of an anti-colonial struggle. Anti-colonial struggles don't simply you know, appear out of holes in the ground. They have to come from the, um, the actions of, um, of the centre, um, the um, deal, the tacit deal between colonists and colonised, unless it is based on, you know, sort of like, you know, an almost kind of um, genocidal violence, which it very, very rarely is really with empire. There, there has to be all sorts of kind of spoken and unspoken colonial reciprocity, you know, arrangements, you know, noblesse oblige, I do for you, you do for me. When those kinds of things break down, or when the promise given by the coloniser appears to be a fraud, a fraud, then you get people gravitating towards really quite risky anti-colonial struggles. And France views um, rules in Syria, in Algeria, and in Indochina in the 1920s, particularly, with huge violence. Um, they essentially conquer Syria with enormous bloodshed. Um, Faisal, uh, son of the Sharif Hussein of Mecca, declares himself king of Syria and is chased out by the French. And in 1924, is finds friends within the uh, with the British. I think helped by T. E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia. Um, and um, is declared uh, King Faisal of Iraq instead. He's a, a very useful person for Britain and France's feuding in the Middle East. By the way, if you haven't read it, read A Line in the Sand by James Barr, which is a brilliant discussion of this kind of hidden history of um, horrendous uh, backbiting and sabotage and immense hypocrisy and hatreds between uh, the, the British in Iraq Palestine and Transjordan, and the French in uh, Lebanon and Syria. There is a, a kind of a key change in um, French attitudes in the mid-1920s. Um, in the um, French government and uh, colonial circles, the idea that the, the, this policy of, of raising kind of these evolu um, to the standard of French citizenship is seen as a kind of um, a weak and ineffective way of ruling the empire. Instead, um, the uh, allied really with the, almost the kind of like the pseudoscience of ethnography, it's decided to that um, local um, ethnic 
power structures need to be um, courted instead. So instead of going and making your own good little Frenchman who will you know, be your administrative rulers in the way that you want, go and find the tribal leaders, the village chiefs, um, and the religious, um, religious leaders in places like Syria or Indochina and use them to um, carry out colonial rule. This switching policy, again, um, angered the Evolu. Um, they had bought into what the French imperial authorities had proposed. If you become educated, if you work hard, and if you um, are loyal to France, you will um, go up the social strata. And as they were doing this, they very often did look down on their uh, less civilised um, and less westernised um, um, contemporaries who um, were uh, remained um, immersed within um, their native cultures. Uh, and it was um, a bit of a shock to them when there was a change in policy that started to favour these uh, ethnic, the local ethnic power structures and local leaders um, who were seen as good little um, kind of imperial helpers at the end of the day. Uh, the, the policy, this policy shift doesn't help to hold the French Empire together. The French Empire is still enormously shaky. Um, and part of the reason for that, and the reason why the British Empire during the interwar period, you know, is whilst at its height is still at its most shaky, is these huge economic um, and political crosswinds that they're both facing. You know, you've got the massive waves of inflation coursing through the world as a result of the aftermath of the First World War, and you know, all sorts of you know, new revolutionary ideas emanating from at least from Russia, if not. Uh, from um, other place, other other centres of kind of um, discourse within the, in the Western world. So it's very very difficult times for empire. The imperial strategy in France was um, talk was kind of developed um, by um, pro imperial um, uh, government ministers. The main one being Théophile Delcasse. Um, and a coalition of interest groups that could lo that are loosely described as being the Empire Party, and these interest groups were um, traders, merchants, to some extent financiers, but really um, in industrialists and those um, people who that were uh, economically connected to Empire, they were getting something out of it, but also who believed that it was part of. France's mission in the world. And this uh, imperial party was a, a huge network of, of lobbyists and, um, again, uh, people with financial clout who um, wanted not only to see uh, French, French imperial expansion, but French imperial consolidation and um, the, you know, in, in the internal development of the empire, so the building of infrastructure, roads, ports, harbours, telegraph lines, um, schools, hospitals, all these, these kinds of things. Partly because it made the empire stronger and more secure, but partly because these were wonderful investment opportunities. These were a great way of proposing projects 
hopefully getting the government to pay for them, or the colonial government out there to pay for them, and then offering to supply the materials and do the work. So, you know, wonderful, wonderful wheezes all round. And the, these were the, this is how imperial policy was, was steered um, through this. And, it, and we shouldn't think of it as a party, as a, like a political party, like sort of the Labour Party or the Conservative Party. By party, it meant sort of group of vested interests. France is interesting in that you have this kind of paradox, and it's, this is something that runs throughout the, the French Empire, um, and you, you see it a little bit in the British Empire, in that you have this notionally egalitarian state, the state that is founded firstly on the principles of the French Revolution, and then secondly on the principles of the Third Republic that came into being uh, after the fall of Louis-Napoleon in 1870 of um, egalitarianism, of equality. It is a, if there's one thing that the, Fr- the Third Republic is based on, it should be this notion of equality. But colonialism is an inherently anti-egalitarian practice. The, um, there is a, a power differential. Um, the colonised are not treated as equals by the colonisers. You do not have um, colonised subject peoples in uh, Indochina or Algeria, or Syria, or wherever else, being able to speak with the same voice that the colonisers do. And one of the reasons for this is because um, France viewed itself as being a state of enlightenment, that it was the founded on enlightenment principles, it was civilization, and it was spreading a civilizing mission to you know lesser peoples around the world, you know, as uh, you know the parent might educate the child. The British have a very similar uh, paradox. You know, Britain is a liberal parliamentary democracy, but it doesn't extend that liberal parliamentary democracy to its colonies, you know, because it patronises them um, and uh, tre- treats them as children, in essence. And, the, and you can see all this in the discourse surrounding um, the mandates, you know, that, the, that there would be three kinds of mandate, uh, mandates that could very quickly be... Um, uh, brought to a level of, of self-rule, mandates that would take a while, and mandates that might be, you know, places like uh, the uh, Pacific Islands that might be indefinitely uh, left to um, uh, to be um, looked after, you know, like as if they were wards of state. Um, so it's, it's interesting that these sort of two notions, this notion of liberal democracy and this egalitarian republic, are capable of generating these really quite contradictory conditions in the world. Um, it's the, the kinds of things you would expect from far more repressive states. But then again, if you take America in the same time period, a country based on the notions of uh, freedom and, and free enterprise, and um, again, of um, equality before the law, and we know that in the southern states of America, such a thing does does not exist. There are specific racial laws that are, are written, the Jim Crow laws. So perhaps not such a, a, an aberration after all. Um, anyway, I hope this has been useful. And one of the things I'd like to do in the future is look a, a bit about what happens to the French Empire during the Second World War and the kind of the virtual civil war that breaks out uh, across the empire during the Second World War. But I, I think that's a kind of a... Uh, a story for another time. Um, but I, I hope you find this useful today, and um, I look forward to catching you on the next Explaining History podcast. All the best. Bye bye. <laughs>